Thank you. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> we are moving right along through our uh, sermon series on sin, and you've done a good job. Good job, everyone. It's been a little scary, but not too bad. Um, we are in the second to last, the penultimate one. So next week, we wrap it up, and we close this out, and some of you are like, thank God, let's move on to something else. Um, we will. <laughs> We're not going to stay here forever. Um, so I just want to recap with the definition we've been using of sin. Um, this is presented by Cornelius Plantinga, who, again, we recommend his book every week. I'm going to keep doing that. It's great. Sin, broadly speaking, is that which disrupts, breaks, or vandalizes shalom. So throughout the sermon series, we've explored sin, um, but we've also explored shalom, um, this whole and complete order of existence um, in which God is rightly partnered with his creation. Humans are rightly partnered with each other and then them with creation, um, mirroring God. This is the way it's all been set up. And the idea now that we understand through the gospel is that we're all being linked together in glorious harmony and unity underneath the lordship of the creator God in King Jesus. This is like a lot of, it's heady, it's theological, um, but we also get it. We get it because we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be some way else. We can feel it. So in that sense, shalom is the way it ought to be. And then the world vandalized, the one we live in, is the way um, that it is right now, that we can feel the disconnect. So I, we're just going to explore this a little bit more today. Um, I want to I talk about these words, um, disrupt, break, vandalize, it's in that um, definition. These are aggressive ideas. They come with, um, they sort of imply this primary active verb of some kind, to, like to vandalize a piece of art. Um, like a painting or something, you like splash red paint on it or you slash through a canvas um, with a knife. There's just this clear action involved and you know it's wrong when you see it being done. So if we understand sin in that way, then a few biblical narratives really rise to the surface as good case studies for sin as vandalism. Like Cain killing Abel. It's just like whoosh, red paint. It's brutal. Or Lamech taking multiple wives right there at the beginning of Genesis. Or Israel at the foot of the mountain building a golden calf. Um, these are, um, they're not subtle moments in the story. Um, it's evident. It's obvious. It's aggressive. And there's a clear perpetrator and a clear moment of overt inappropriate behavior. So it's kind of what we've been exploring. Um, Today, though, I want to explore the kinds of vandalism that are not so overt. There are sins in this world that are sneakier and more subtle than those of murder or blatant idolatry. In fact, those obvious and overt forms of vandalism to God's shalom hardly ever start off with someone who decides all at once to do something explicitly destructive to God's shalom. More often than not, these catastrophic moments grow from deceptive and um, sort of warped patterns where um, these tendencies are permitted to grow and they're left unchecked. So I want to talk about the sins of covering up and evasion. Been categories that have, I've been learning about. Covering up and evasion. Um, and I want to call them secondary sins, um, which is not in the Bible anywhere, but just 
for some helpful categories. Because they're always in response to the primary ones, to the primary wrongdoing which came first. But it's these secondary sins where we see human nature squirm and then mutate into something that's actually worse than it was when it did the initial deed, (laughs) the primary sin. So shalom is only further shattered, further desecrated, when in the wake of our vandalism, we pretend like we can quickly make it better, only to find that we just made it a lot worse. Um, Okay, illustration. In 2016, a small Catholic church in Sudbury, Canada, which I'd never heard about until I read about it, found itself caught in the crossfire of some neighborhood vandalism. Uh, The vandalism was sort of widespread in the area, and there was a statue on the grounds of this Catholic church in Canada of Mary holding um, a young Jesus that had become the target for some mischief-making, as my grandma would say. You can see this next picture here. Um, This is the statue. It's been chipped in a few different places, and you can see it's um, pretty regal. They're both wearing crowns. Um, So one night, though, this statue suffered a devastating blow when, in the fiercest act of vandalism yet, someone lopped off uh, baby Jesus' head. Nobody laugh. Next picture. There you go. Yikes. So as you can imagine, the community is very upset. Um, No one's sure what to do, but everyone agrees we have to do something. We can't just have this headless baby Jesus on the church grounds. It doesn't look very good. And so they wanted to fix the problem quick. Sorry, we're not laughing. That's when a local well-meaning artist showed up. A well-meaning artist, I'm not going to mention her name, and she felt convinced that she could solve the problem. After a few hours working with some terracotta clay the artist installed her piece and the community discovered this. Real, not fake, real. (laughs) Oh, it's even more shocking on the big screen than it is on my computer screen. Okay, all right, we got our giggles out. Um, I've had a fair share of giggles this week, my goodness. So many things could be said about this little story of art restoration gone bad. Um, We don't really need to say anything. The internet said it all in 2016. um, And poor Sudbury Canada would forever be on the map as the place where baby Jesus looks like a Simpsons character. (laughs) That is a quote. You can go read all about it. Um, But here's what I want to say for today. Active sin, like Cain killing Abel, it's the moment where the statue's head is knocked off with a hammer. It's just like obvious. We see Shalom brutally vandalized in that moment. But there's another form of vandalism, of sin, which is different. It's the part that comes after the primary one. It's the secondary act where we cover it up with something we've desperately sculpted to play the role of beautiful Shalom, but which is just a far cry from it. So sin likes to wear a lot of makeup in order to cover up the deed with a glamorous appearance or it evades. So we're going to look first at covering up. Um, To see examples of covering up, look no further than uh, celebrity culture and or reality television, and you will never find a more stunning, bedazzled display of sin masquerading at the ball of the beautiful. Um, So full transparency, I've been known to find my own fair share of fascination in reality TV, mostly Survivor, which I confess I still do watch. Jeff Probst, if you're watching, please read over my three applications that I've sent in. Um, 
But something my wife and I have noticed and have had long conversations about while watching Survivor, <laughs> and by the way, it doesn't take a sociologist to notice this, it's nothing profound, is that when people wrong one another in these settings and the camera's rolling, there is Herculean effort invested in the reframing of the sin to make it look more noble once they're found out. And it's shocking to watch in real time. You, if you watch any television, you know what I'm talking about. Person A backstabs person B, and person A says something like, I was trying to protect you, <laughs> or I just, just didn't want you to get hurt. Um, and on the rare occasion when person A is just fully caught, red-handed in the behavior, they almost always reach deep into the bag of tricks and say something like, listen, I'll fully own up to that, but I was just trying to be true to myself and what I need. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. And, and it isn't even rare to see some individuals, this is pretty common in Survivor at least, in the wake of their horrific behavior say something like, listen, I've just spent my whole life caring for other people, but it's time to focus on me now. And it just totally spins your brain because what was clearly just an obvious act of vandalism to God's shalom, just relational harmony, with a few key buzzwords has just totally been recast as something noble and valiant uh, all at once. And so the, as viewers, you sort of watched both sides of that exchange. And so you're watching in real time the installation of a terracotta baby head. And you're like, I don't, that's, I don't think that's good. <laughs> that's not. The first act of vandalism happened, the cameras were rolling, and then you watched as someone made this shallow attempt to construct something noble and beautiful out of their actions. But we're nowhere closer to shalom. And so it's just a nightmare and ratings go up. Um, Cornelius Plantinga says this, to do its worst, evil needs to look its best. Evil has to spend a lot on makeup. Vices have to masquerade as virtues. Lust as love. Thinly veiled sadism as military discipline. Envy as righteous indignation. Domestic tyranny as parental concern. Even Satan, who looks heroic to rebels, must masquerade as an angel of light in order to look merely plausible. So in both celebrity culture and political culture, especially in America, we see this sort of behavior every day. Plantinga goes on to say this, scandalized public officials rarely say, I did wrong. I'm heartily ashamed of myself. I have betrayed you, disgraced my high office, and therefore resigned. No, that's not the drill these days. Tarred by scandal, they will confess to being misunderstood. Classic. So it's fascinating about this phenomenon, though, um, th this immediate impulse to cover up, this gaping wound with plastic surgery or something, is that with enough time, we actually convince ourselves that we did truly act virtuously with the best of intentions. We did, right? So there are many reality TV stars right now, tell me there aren't, who look at themselves in the mirror and say, without a trace of doubt, my flaws are just that I, like, I love people too hard and it costs me. Or my flaw is that I just don't have time for drama. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> I just don't have time for it. <laughs> oh man, it is gold medal winning self-deception because I think they believe it in that moment. And here's the thing, church. It's not just celebrity culture. Like we do this all the time, all the time. When we find ourselves in messy situations, we always find a way to point to the other person and say, gosh, if they could just see that I'm doing this, 
then the whole situation would be fixed. Or it's not my fault, he isn't noticing how hard I'm working. Or I'm sacrificing for her, but she's just too prideful to see it. We wear masks for so long that the masks become fixed to our faces and then we mistake them for our real identities. Masquerading leads to self-swindling. And when we self-swindle, we're always the heroes and or the victims of the stories of our lives. Always. Another quote. Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. And then we assert, adorn, and elevate that what we know to be false. We prettify the ugly realities and sell ourselves prettified versions. Thus, a liar, get it, watch this, ready? Thus, a liar might transform, quote, I tell a lot of lies to shore up my pride, to, quote, occasionally I finesse the truth in order to spare other people's feelings. Isn't that crazy? We do, we do this. We become our own dupes, playing the role of both perpetrator and then victim. Um, man, after David's infamous sin with Bathsheba, you'll remember that David feels the need to cover up his sin. So he quickly arranges for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come home from battle and sleep with Bathsheba. Remember this? David molds the proverbial terracotta baby head, if you will. And unfortunately, it just won't stick. The horrible thing will not stick. So after his plan with Uriah fails, he vandalizes Shalom further in orders for Uriah to be killed in battle. It's another overt and obvious act of vandalism to Shalom. It's like now he whacks off the arm of the statue or something as well. So he molds yet another ugly terracotta body part to slap it on. And this time it's by playing the role of the valiant leader who just, doggone it, has to suffer the loss of brave men when you rule a kingdom. He masquerades as the encouraging king. Good job, you guys. Sometimes we suffer loss and battle and like, it's okay. Keep being brave out there. <laughs> and honestly, it's a shocking turn of events. This is the David we've celebrated up to this point in the story. David commits adultery. Then he hatches a cover-up plot, which turns into a murder plot, which requires another cover-up charade, which he then, and by doing that, he has to put on the most radiant mask in the ball. And when he hears the news that the plot to kill Uriah actually succeeded, David convinces himself that that mask he wears, that of the broken-hearted but brave king, is his actual face. It isn't until Nathan comes later in the story holding up a mirror that David is even made aware of his own deception. And I, man, as shocking as the story is, I think that's the most shocking part. The most shocking part of the story, and it's worth some reflection right now, is that despite all that happened, like active vandalism to God's shalom, despite the blood on David's hands, the story explores with sort of unshrinking boldness David's horrifying lack of self-awareness. Um, and so here's the thing. Some of us pride ourselves on being very self-aware. So as the audience, we're ashamed of David, but if we're paying attention, then you, we must allow the scriptures once again to hold a mirror up to us as we read them. And when we do, we discover that we too have deceived ourselves into thinking the story we've sold, the one of our noble, selfless behavior, is actually, um, 
it's not necessarily the true version of ourselves, if we're honest. So sin wears a lot of makeup, and we don't want anyone to hold the mirror too closely. It's like those horrible mirrors at Bed Bath & Beyond that like magnify, that my wife loves. And I'm like, bleh. She's like, it's great. It shows you every pore. I'm like, yikes, I don't. <laughs> so we don't want to look at that mirror, so we run. We run away from the mirror. So you, you either, um, you're either dealing with cover-up or you're evading. Um, evasion, man. Am I my brother's keeper? Says Cain. Um, it was the woman whom you gave me, says Adam. It's, it's an age-old story. I want to tell you, um, okay, I want to tell you about a scientific study conducted in the early 60s which became known famously as the Milgram experiment. Most of you have probably heard of this at some point. Um, I admit, I had only heard of it um, a couple years ago and was totally blown away by it, and so I want to just share part of it today. So the Milgram experiment began in 1961, and it was led by Stanley Milgram at Yale University. Um, So at its core, the whole thing was done in efforts to explore the nature of uh, human, uh, sorry, the nature of the relationship between a human and then the systems of authority or orders given. And so this experiment was conducted in light of the horrors of World War II. And Milgram was just curious, how did so many people come under the spell of such an evil regime and follow orders? Like, how is that possible? And so Milgram placed an ad in the paper in New Haven, Connecticut, where he offered generous compensation to come and be part of this experiment. He managed to collect adults from all sorts of professions. um, And when the volunteers showed up, they found the following scene. I'm gonna do my best to describe it for you. So in a laboratory, um, we can go to the next slide right now, yeah, okay. In a laboratory, there were three positions. E is the experimenter, T is the teacher, and L is the learner, if you can see that. And um, the question posed to the volunteers when they came into the scene was, what, is the, what role harsh discipline plays in learning? If you are harshly disciplined, will you learn better? And will, will the student learn if disciplined? So here's, here's, what you need to ro- here's what you need to know. The role of E, the experimenter, and L, the learner, were always paid actors, okay? They were always being done by, played a- by paid actors. The volunteers, when they walked in, they always saw experimenter on top, learner on bottom, and they were always, they didn't know what was going on. And so um, the experimenter was sort of a scientific looking man in a lab coat, and the learner always just looked like an average Joe. In fact, the volunteer was told, this is another volunteer. The learner is another volunteer. You are going to play the role of the teacher. That's what every volunteer heard when they walked in. You're going to be the teacher. So here's how the experiment worked. The unknowing volunteer in the teacher position would ask a question to the learner that it was on a piece of paper. And if the learner got it wrong, which he, const- he consistently did on purpose because he's an actor, the experimenter would then direct the teacher to sh- turn a dial on a machine and shock the learner. Shock him, give him a shock. So of course, um, the machine was a fake. Uh, next slide. And the learner was an actor. And so he was never in any real danger or pain. But the volunteers, when instructed, would turn the dial and watch as the learner was shocked before their eyes. And this actor, man, he did not hold back. 
He just went for it. He was going for his Oscar. He put on a convincing display of real pain and the teacher, when the teacher obeyed the instructions to turn the dial. So here's the deal. Um, I'm going to just spare you the details. You can research it on your own and read about it all you want. But in short, the shock dial ranged from painful to like dangerous and critical. Like this isn't acceptable to actually be practiced on a human. <laughs> like in red letters all the way across. And with each click of the dial, the actor learner would sort of intensify his cries of pain um, until he was begging for the experiment to stop. It was part of his acting. And at that point, the experimenter said every time, no, keep going. We have to push on through the experiment. And so you'll be horrified to know that people did. They just kept going. And they kept going. And so the Milgram experiment, which faced harsh criticism afterwards for the psychological trauma it inflicted on its volunteers, it revealed alarmingly that human beings, even if in deep conflict in their soul, followed the orders of this experimenter, despite being aware of the pain it was causing another human right in front of them. The experiment showcased the frightful loyalty human beings gave to the experiment. Um, so, okay, fortunately, throughout the day, there were those men who refused to engage further. At, at the sight of the learner's display of pain, an alarm went off in them that was somehow louder than the voice of the experimenter, and they stood up and said, I won't, I'm not going to turn another dial. you got to find someone else. But overwhelmingly, people were willing to follow orders. And it isn't to say they enjoyed it or something. They were in real conflict as they did it, but they did it. They kept going. And so the Milgram revealed a few things worth our time that I want to talk about. The first is it showcased the strong instinct to submit to authority, even if it means the harm of someone else. Even as some pulled out their own hair with the conflict inside of themselves, they just kept turning the dial as the experimenter told them to. But another thing the experiment revealed, and this one was kind of an unintended discovery of the experiment, was how quickly each volunteer tried to evade responsibility um, for their actions once the whole experiment was exposed and they were finally let in on the secret of the experiment. So get this, in the debriefing room, when the actors exposed their true identities and the learner's like, don't worry, I'm, you didn't really shock me, um, these volunteers, they were still reeling from the experience, as you can imagine, it's still trying to process. And there was a shocking amount of backpedaling and justifying. Almost every person began to shift blame onto the experimenter. They would, saying they, they tried to stop, but they couldn't. The experimenter like was making them do it. Every single person, they spent an enormous amount of energy rejecting this experiment itself, calling it inhumane or disturbing or whatever. But Milgram felt that, the, that it only revealed the value of the experiment even more, that debriefing session. Very few people were willing to take an honest look at their behavior and say, yikes, I was wrong. I am horrified by my behavior. That was not the reaction. So the temptation to evade was just palpable, um, and it was disturbing. The Bible tells a story of humans who lose imagination for God's shalom, and so in their brokenness, they invent new s structures of order 
And in their attempt to control the chaos in their lives, they just creatively organize systems um, which create the illusion of control that they can then like plug themselves into, feels safe. And the Milgram experiment revealed with quantifiable data that human beings are remarkably loyal to the systems of control that they create, to this authority of the man in the lab coat running the experiment, and that they would override the horror before them just to like obey. So remember, you guys, this was being done as a way to explore like just how humans could so loyally follow Hitler in World War II. This desire to plug ourselves into a system that promises order and structure is so strong within us because it allows us to escape responsibility. When pressed into a corner, we all want to escape rather than turn and face the music. And so to become cogs in the system promises comfort in two ways. First, we can align ourselves with the system and then find enemies outside of it. That's really comforting. This is why we found in the last two years, especially when faced with great turmoil and massive hardship, people from opposing political parties so easily found ways to blame everything wrong in the world on people from op opposing opposite political parties. You notice that? There was always a, an answer to the world's problems and it was the other side. According to inner city graffiti and rural bumper stickers, all the world's problems could be sourced in either conservatives or liberals. And all of them could be solved if we just got rid of the other half of the population. It's all their fault. And you can just feel there's gotta be a better way, right? Within war rhetoric, like we saw during World War II, and now within a highly polarized culture, like we see in our own country, human beings cling, we just cling to systems and structures or political parties which promise control, wisdom, and an enemy to blame it all on. It feels super good. The promise of an enemy outside the system is just very comforting. But becoming a cog in the system promises a second comfort, that of an enemy within the system that also keeps us from acknowledging our destructive behavior. So if you can't find the enemy out there, there's gotta be one inside the structure because you're just a cog. It's not your fault. So the men and women of the Milgram experiment kept saying afterwards, it's the man with the lab coat. He made me do it. And I wasn't about to stop the very important experiment. It's amazing. It's as if, um, as if Milgram forced them to turn the dials. So these are the twin evils, cover-up and evasion, and they're constantly at work in our lives of sin. Every day, humans participate in primary acts of vandalism, but we make it worse when we just cover it up and evade. And um, hold on to these. These are just your secondary ones, and they all sneak up on you. They sneak up on me. Um, so I want to just kind of end our time here. We still have a few minutes, but I want to look at one more piece of artwork. This one, a bit more well-known. Do you guys know who this is? Most of you probably know. Yeah, it's Vincent Van Gogh. He was a 19th century... I'm never, I've never been a huge Van Gogh fan, but then I started reading about him over the past couple of weeks, and now I'm like obsessed with Van Gogh stuff. <laughs> it's usually how it goes. Dude, holy cow. He was a 19th century painter whose work only after his death, really, would become known as some of the most important artwork in Western art history. Van Gogh, while utterly prolific and profoundly talented, was ultimately um, a very sad and tortured figure. And he led what most would describe as really a tragic life in the end, for those of you that know his story. Van Gogh suffered a great deal from depression, paranoia, um, public outbursts, which got so bad 
in March 1889 um, that 30, 30 of his neighbors, that's a lot of people united against a cause. 30 of his neighbors petitioned that the police remove him from his rented flat in the little French village he lived in. So in perhaps his um, most famous moment of insanity, Van Gogh cut off his ear, remember this? And in a moment of sheer derangement, took the ear to a local prostitute and said, take it, it will be useful. Um, He had just like reached rock bottom. It's just insane. And um, Van Gogh, he later, he checked checked himself into St. Paul Asylum for the mentally ill. He needed to get away from the world. He had to figure it out. And so he stayed there for a year. And do you know what he did during that time in the insane asylum? (laughs) He painted. He painted a ton. So some of Van Gogh's most famous works were completed while in the asylum. Like, um, next slide, Starry Night, Wheatfield with Cypresses, Man, works which would, in the future, put Van Gogh on the map in a way you could never imagine. He painted them in an asylum. Um, uh, But just before asylum, when he reached absolute rock bottom, Van Gogh painted this right here, self-portrait, which we began with, and it's simply called Self-Portrait with Bandaged Ear. That's what it's called. And here in this self-portrait, Van Gogh experts agree, is a remarkably raw display of honesty and vulnerability. Um, This bandage on his head was, for Van Gogh, a symbol of his pain and madness. All of the anxieties of life could be symbolized in this gaping wound on the side of his head. Um, But he gave it full exposure on the canvas. He just painted it. Van Gogh painted himself as he actually was, broken, maimed, and vandalized by his own behavior. And so here's why we're, here's why we're talking about Van Gogh right now. Um, Russ Ramsey says of this portrait, the story ends with a sweet bit of irony, self-portrait with bandaged ear in which Van Gogh captured the moment of his spiritual and relational poverty is now worth millions. That canvas faithfully captures a defining moment of shame and need for rescue by showing the bandaged side, and it became a priceless treasure. So this, he'll go on to say, is how God sees his people. This is great. Broken, yet we are of incalculable, incalculable worth to God. Um, so here, I want to invite you guys to stand as we kind of conclude here. Um, if the ministry team wants to come forward, prayer team wants to come forward, just the next few minutes. Um, to actively sin against another person, to blatantly vandalize God's shalom, that's worth drawing attention to. That's why we're doing this series, and I want you guys to all search your hearts. <laughs> but today there's another layer which I think the Holy Spirit is addressing. Some of us aren't even at a place of addressing sin um, because we're convinced we have no sin to address. <laughs> We have found ourselves in conflicts, in places of disharmony and disunity, but we keep coming up saying, I've just done nothing wrong. And maybe that's true for some of you. Chances are it's not for most of you. So I just want to encourage you, um, whoever you are, to be brave today and to see where you're molding terracotta baby heads, (laughs) pretending that you're building something beautiful 
and that everything's fine when you're actually shifting blame or evading and you're trying your hardest to turn someone else into the villain in the story. Ramsey says this, it is hard to render an honest self-portrait if we want to conceal what is unattractive and hide what's broken. We want to appear beautiful, but when we do, we hide what needs redemption, what we trust Christ to redeem, and everything redeemed by Christ becomes beautiful. So here we go, closing remarks here. Bring, you guys bring your real self-portrait to God during ministry time, whether that's privately in the pew or whether you need to come forward for prayer um, or whether you just need a tap on the shoulder of someone that you trust. There's no obligation for you and how you do it, but bring your real self-portrait to God, the one with the bandaged ear. And then what you'll find is that God sees in you incalculable value. He loves you. He loves us. There is grace. There is forgiveness. There is healing and there is impetus for new life for you. Um, but the self-portrait must be an honest one for the value to be made known. There you go.